Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 27. Akira! Using the 124-minute Kadansha Funimation Blu-ray release from 2012. You can, of course, find Akira on Amazon Prime and Vudu for purchase. But if you are subscribers to Funimation, Hulu, or Tubi, it is currently licensed through those platforms. If you press play on the Blu-ray now, you'll be ahead a second or two as the others load. Katsuhiro Otomo was 34 years old when he formed the Akira Committee, consisting of the heads of several different Japanese media syndicates, including the Toho Corporation, the largest distributor of films in Japan, to fund and produce an animation of Otomo's own manga, which he wrote and drew himself, using a small staff of artists to fill. We pan across the modern city of Tokyo in 1988 a city teeming with tens of millions of people, and we watch them get wiped out by an enormous explosion of a type we assume to be atomic in nature. The all-white blast matches the blast we will see in the ending, leaving no doubt that both events were caused by the same phenomena. We think we are watching the resulting fireball for a few seconds until it contorts into a bird's-eye view of Tokyo Bay. Only the bay itself is now filled with a city. This city is Neo-Tokyo. The screen informs us it is the year 31 after the Third World War, which we are also guessing was started or ended with the previous supposedly atomic blast. The year 2019 is also the year Rick Deckard hunted replicant humans in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, and we will see this is not the last comparison we will make of that film. Otomo shows us Ikira, in large type to deliberately contrast the smallness that we will meet at the end of the film. In fact, there are a lot of big things happening from small people, and we will see the inverse is true. Large people seem to be capable of only small actions in the world of Akira and his colleagues. On the screen, we see the number of 19, a repeating reference to 2019, and the number 19, a character in the manga which was not used in the same way in this film. The bar gives us our immediate setting, the seedy underlife of Neo-Tokyo's biker gangs. The crime-ridden world, though, will soon give way to larger issues, the politics of oppression, what that oppression is trying to control, and what happens to the universe when that control is lost. And now it's time to introduce our guest host from the Film is Lit podcast. Please welcome Laura Seeling. Hello. My job isn't to believe or disbelieve. It is to act or not act. Danny Gaylord. Better than your hog's piss. <laughs> That's a little too crass. No, no, not at all. And Ryan Burns. Heads up, Tetsuo. <laughs> My dear audience, the Film is Lit podcast did an episode on Akira that I found so enlightening that I actually thought about canceling this episode. However decided instead to invite Film is Lit to the Super 70 to help me break down the film as we go through it. And since we are witnessing a critical piece of the movie unfold in the beginning, I'd like to ask Ryan, if I remember from the Film is Lit episode, you've read the entire manga, have you not? 
Uh, yes, I have. All right. What is the difference, say, between the first 20 minutes of the film and the first oh, some hundred or so pages of the manga? So it's it's interesting. The the they both start out similarly, um, introducing the biker gang and kind of focusing on in the first 30 pages or so the uh, crash between uh, Tetsuo and Takashi. Um, that's right off the bat, essentially, just like the, uh, the, in the movie, it's a little more drawn out. It's a little more character development. Um, there's kind of the scene with the the bar, they leave the bar and they get on the bikes and then the, the kind of the battle between the biker gangs ensues. And then the manga, it's not so much the battle between the biker gangs that leads to that crash, but um, there's a little bit more in the manga kind of right around 45 or 50. There's, there's more of a militaristic presence in the first hundred pages or so. So we don't really get exposed to kind of the military, the military's involvement and in everything in the movie until a little bit later. Um, so there's there's kind of some separation uh, there between the two. But in the movie, we see more of a focus on the central characters leading up to the initial crash uh, between Tetsuo and Takashi and how that kind of sets off the events for everything in the film. From there, in the manga, it's, it's a little bit different in that um, there, there's just some, some different players involved with the events leading up to that specific point. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of characters that are left out uh, entirely. And we can get into uh, that later here. Tetsuo slides off his bike because he is not the best writer of the, of the gang. And this entire sequence uh, reminds me specifically of Blade Runner and actually probably more of 2049 than the original. Yeah. It's almost like 2049 took a, a lot from the original. Uh, these plates I want to I want to get to soon, and then I heard you guys mention on your your podcast on Film Is Lit how this was really reminiscent of Tron, which was only yes. four years before. Yeah, Tron, and I, I think it took inspiration from Tron, but then Tron Legacy, uh, decades later, really capitalized um, on this imagery of, of the streaks of it being a little bit more rounded and having it fade away as opposed to the original Tron film, how it was just a single hard line that, that stayed the whole time. Um, yeah, I think the, certainly the biggest two inspirations for Akira were Blade Runner and Tron, but the amount of stuff that then came out of Akira is just vast. Well, it's almost like uh, both of those sequels uh, took notes from Akira as opposed yeah. to originally from the first film. So Bozoku, Bozozuku uh, is in kanji, actually, um, one of the three alphabets of Japanese. And it has three meanings, violence or cruelty, running or race, and tribe, all in the same word. Wow. Cool. So there's your Japanese lesson for today. I am honestly just taking all the colors in because I've been studying a lot about how the colors sort of play into this movie. And like the streaks, I think were the first thing that I was really interested in because I had never seen Tron. And 
I think that's just such a beautiful way of showing movement in, uh, in anime. And I've just been reading about how there were, I think like 50 new colors that had never been used in animation before this film. And it's, I think the coloring, the choice of coloring sort of goes toward making it more realistic and less, um, abstract coloring. Cause I think kind of take for this, for the Simpsons, for example, like they're, you know, yellow kind of, that's what abstract coloring is, but this movie goes more toward like realistic coloring. And I think that they did that because they didn't want it to be seen as like a foreign, like weird quote unquote Japanese film, but it just stands out so much. Like this movie just looks different than any kind of anime that's out there. And already we're introduced to uh, two different color palettes. They used one color palette for the opening, which is the biker race. And now they've switched and now we're in more of a ghetto and the color palette is really subdued, even though you have a little bit of neon here. So that's very interesting. It was kind of like the, the problem that they had with Pocahontas where they spent uh, uh, five extra years doing that film for Disney because they had to invent new colors because they wanted to look uh, smokier. Really? I did not know that. That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Uh, the biker riots in the seventies uh, were the background to the Ozazuku. They actually have a code in the biker gang, which is slightly more militaristic than anything else in civil society. In 1988, you could not drive a car until you're 21, but you could drive a two-wheeled vehicle at the age of 16. And this is also the age that corresponds with the traditional Japanese age from adolescence to manhood. So the fact that you could drive a bike right in between that time puts you into a, a culture immediately just because of the age that you were born. Yeah. Right. In this specific time, in this specific place. Now, uh, there were, in 1988, 42,000 members of these bike gangs. And guess what the three most popular films in 1988 were in Japan? Number one, The Road Warrior. Number two, Clockwork Orange. Number three, Easy Rider. And actually, the fourth one was Tron. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say, bring up Akira. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, and it's interesting what you said about uh, maybe the Japanese were not trying to make some of the violence here. Every time I see the scene, I'm just thinking, oh, my God, what am I watching? Platoon? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it's interesting. I'm sorry to finish that thought. What, interesting what you're saying about them maybe not trying to make this look as Japanese as it could. When, in fact, Otomo said that he had no outside market in mind and it always surprised him that Akira was an, an enormous global success, especially in France. Well, I think that I read that like George Lucas said it was not going to be marketable in the States. He like didn't want to touch it. And I think that's the beauty of more modern, modern cinema. I think I hope that more modern audiences are, you know, open to receiving things from different cultures and not just seeing it through an American lens. Cause this is not like any American anime or, or adult animation that I've ever seen. And I think like, that's a good thing. Like we should be open to receiving things from other cultures and especially for a piece that's so culturally um, infused, I guess, with like the violence and culture of post-World War II. Like, I think we need to learn that from something that's not been sort of sifted through an American lens. 
cinema, American cinema is probably the most self-reflexive cultural aspect of our society. It is not reflective of, in my opinion, the populace at large, despite the fact that they go so frequently. Uh, everyone loves to go to Marvel films. They don't really actually think, why is it that we're constantly fighting apocalypses after 9-11? That's not really entering their mind, right? So I tend to, to agree with you. But uh, as we know, most Americans don't even own a passport. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. So in the riots here, directly uh, inspired by Otomo's own experiences in the 1960s, where there were just like anywhere else that there were in, in France and the United States in the 60s, there were, there were riots in, in every democratic country. There were riots in Israel over what was happening. There were riots in Germany about what was happening in Vietnam. How dare these bombers uh, come to uh, Okinawa before they go to Vietnam to bomb these places. Yeah, just just the it, it's so interesting. Oh, there, there's the bike again with the streaks. The how the, the decision to make this film take place in night uh, prominently, and we're, you brought up colors, Laura, about how animated films during that time uh, mostly took place during the day as to um, so there wasn't as high a contrast. You didn't have to implement as many colors, but Otomo going for that realism, you had to bring, bring in these new colors and a result of that are these vibrant uh, reds. So the, the smoke in the riots um, you can clearly see as this enveloping force and all the blood is kind of this exaggerated, red as opposed to the darker red that you, you, you normally see. And it, I think it adds to the uh, visceral nature of, of the violence. It is, it's more than just violent. It's ultra violent. Yeah. And, <laughs> and for a kid who grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons and was hooked on space ghost, I mean, to come and see this was just, I mean, it was outside my realm of understanding. You know, you can, you can show murder, in a, in a manga, like how, or an anime, how is that even accepted or possible? This is rated R. How is it that a cartoon is rated R? Now, I know we had heavy metal before this, but heavy metal was kind of like a perverted thing you do with extra cash in Hollywood. It's not actually the norm, <laughs> right? This is the norm in the East. Now it is. Akira made it so, right? But manga was an yeah. adult uh, film industry before Akira for decades. It's not, it was never manga itself was not for kids. It was for adults. The Flintstone market, I mean, was, was, was in Japan, but it's considered something else. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you brought up a clockwork orange because I hadn't made that connection, but now that you say ultra violence, like that's exactly what this movie is. Yeah. And like gangs in a dystopian future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Takeshi there in this floating Professor X platform that he has. Yeah, yeah he is probably my favorite uh, character in the manga series. I read the first three volumes. Takeshi? And, yeah, Takeshi and um, the other Esper in the floating orb there, his name. Masuro? Masuro, yes. Yeah. 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 Don't worry, it took me about uh, 2,000 pages to get that down to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I read all six of them in the span of uh, three weeks. It was it was pretty crazy. 
any any two minutes you can go through this film and you can point this out. But if if you see the movement on screen of the stuff flying around in the background, the movement of their arms, or even uh, when Canada's collar was floating in the wind there, even these shoes that are marching, you immediately know there's an enormous difference between this and Hanna-Barbera. Mm-hmm. And it took me forever to, to figure out why is it that this flows faster? And that is because I looked it up. I looked it up. That is because the standard in the film industry, does anybody know what the, the FPS is in the film industry? Yes, exactly. What is it for television about 1980 worldwide? 10. Yeah. And what is it for cartoons? Eight. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So now uh, with, with early television, particularly in the 60s, which was mainly black and white, color TV would not really take over until 1967, 1968. And then the broadcast really didn't go full force until 1969. It was never really that big of an issue because you couldn't see stuff on TV at home over broadcast at that rate anyway. Mm-hmm. The cathode ray tube was just not strong enough to show you that many frame rates. So nobody cared. But by the time you get to the 80s, everyone has a TV that's 10 years or younger. And so the frame rate all of a sudden matters. And Otomo knew this. Now, I worked it out for a two-hour film with 7,200 seconds at 24 FPS. There must be 172,800 frames. Seems like a lot. Now that that's an obsessive amount, but if you're shooting on film, you spend that without even thinking, but in Akira, you're drawing it. Now each individual cell in Akira is not photographed. So for instance, you've got shots like this that go on for several seconds. That's, that's fine. But in some of the takes, particularly the opening takes, they are panning. And when you're pan, you have one enormous cell that might be twice the width of the screen. And then you move your camera across that. So you're only really painting one large cell, which is theoretically is not going to take you the same amount of time as if you did five or six. So there is some, uh, I won't say cheating involved, but you're not really talking about 172,000 cells that you have to individually do. But when you think about Sleeping Beauty, when you think about uh, Snow White, when you think about the standard for them was 12 frames per second or maybe 15 if they felt, you know, let's spend a lot of money, 15 frames per second. You're still going to notice when the dwarves are flying around this enormous gap in motion, which does not exist in Akira. There are some things that go on where you think, well, there's some jerky motion. But on the whole, there's a whole lot more fluid movement. And what kills me about this entire argument is The Hobbit came out at 48 frames per second, and people lost their minds. They thought it was extravagant. Now, I saw uh, Zhang Shi in theaters last week, and there was movement across that screen that I could not see. Why did I pay $12 to go see a martial arts fight that I can't see the punches in? That, that to me, sounds just very stupid. I know it's happening on a screen that's 17 times the what I have in, in our modern theater, but I really feel like uh, Peter Jackson was, was unduly spayed during that entire scene. He's just trying to give the viewer what he wants and it's digital. What do you care if it's 48 frames per second? It's not your hard drive. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're not winning a contest. Yeah. I saw a uh, Gemini man uh, two years ago and that was at, what was it? 128 frames per second. Oh my God. 
Jeez. And I respect the um, experiment of it all. It It is cool to just test that out, but it is so much visual information that it, it is too much. It is sensory overload. And also you kind of need, you need that sweet spot uh, of the amount of frames where there are certain gaps and your mind will fill those gaps. But when you have 128 frames, it doesn't feel like you're watching uh, a moving picture. If that, if that makes sense, you're everything melds together and it actually look ends up looking cheap um, because you're just seeing everything as clear as you can get. And with normal like cinematic lighting, those, you know, with the 24 frames, it, it creates that cinematic look that quote unquote that I learned in uh, film school that where you actually kind of need that sweet spot. If you have too many frames that you need to light the set up more so you can capture that information and then over lighting makes your film look cheap. So that's a whole other thing we could talk well, yeah, about. Yeah, but there's very subtle things going on, like Kay, the introduction of this very important character that we that is unfortunately does not have enough screen time, in my opinion. Kay shifted her shoulders in that last shot, and it's a very uh, nuanced movement that that only the creator cares about because he's he's adding something uh, to the character for the audience, right? And that shift with that FPS, why why would you care if if this were uh, half the frames per second, nobody would even bother, right? It's it's because it's Speed Racer, or whatever. And I'm not dogging Speed Racer, and mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of that. But it, it, there's definitely a, di- a difference going on. So uh, in the introduction of K, as because K is here, I do want to bring up. Okay, Ryan, now that K is in the in the picture, what is Canada's real goal in this entire endeavor? It's in, in terms of when he meets Kay. I mean, really? I mean, he is off the bat infatuated with her. I mean, he, he thinks, I think she's very attractive and, and he's kind of like, how can I, you know, kind of take her out? And he's completely unaware at this point as to what she's working on. Um, with uh, kind of the resistance movement um, and they kind of cross paths when they get taken into custody. And then once they get out, he's kind of like, but I mean, he does a, he does his part in getting her out um, from kind of the police interrogation scene. And then he's immediately kind of trying to, you know, kind of get her number. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, he's he a skirt chaser. Cute. I mean, Canada is shameless. Yeah. I mean, even in the manga, he's, and she's constantly telling him you're sick. She slaps him, and I yeah. know it's on your mind. And <laughs> yeah. and she's right. She's absolutely right. And 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 in the manga, probably the two most honest people in the manga is K and Tetsuo. Right. Canada right. seems to have two goals. One is to get into K's panties, and the other one is to stop Tetsuo. And they're both born out of this shameless masculinity, which is comes out of Japan at the time. And I find it hard to believe that Otomo did that without knowing about it. Like he wasn't commenting on, on uh, what the shameless masculinity was doing, right? Even at the end of, uh, of the manga, which spoilers, if you have not read the manga, when they're on the bike and they're driving into what's left of new Tokyo, Kay's on the back of the bike and you see the look on Canada's face, victory, 
Yes, I bet Tetsuo. Yes, I mean we all know I I I beat Tetsuo. That's fine. But what do I really care about? It's this girl on my bike is what I really care. That's why you know there's this whole other thing that we're going to go into then when we get to, into Tetsuo, which is uh, in the Napoleon complex and. And the fact that Tetsuo was not even a second or a string fiddle, despite the fact that he was ostensibly Canada's best friend, right? Um, but Tetsuo was was never cool enough to be the leader of the gang. And the fact that he was rebelling like this and being the leader of the clowns and doing all these things that Canada was telling him not to do, Ted, uh, you know, Canada just couldn't take it. He couldn't take insubordination. That's a very Japanese idea uh, with their with their caste system that they have of look. This person is older, you are inferior, you just got this job, or you sweep the floors, or whatever it is. It's it's almost like India without brand names for castes, right? Yeah, I, I want to talk about this scene in particular because I think the idea of becoming an adolescent and going through that visceral experience was my way into this movie, and the manga in a lot of ways, because I... I found it really hard to watch. Like I, I kind of have a low violence threshold and there are a lot of times in this, like when the coach slaps all of the kids, I was like, Oh my God, like I, this is just beyond what I can handle. And then we started talking about funnily enough, um, big mouth during our podcast episode. And I think that overstated violence and, you know, the way we were talking about sort of growing through adolescence, like that, that made me really appreciate how overblown the violence and the, just the the experience of this whole movie is because you, you go through adolescence and it it does feel like this. It does feel like everyone's out to get you and nothing can go right. And, you know, you try to do the right thing and you still get in trouble that was really my way into this movie. So I like that scene at the the high school. It really illustrates how, you know, you mean nothing. You're at the bottom of the pile when you're in high school and adults can do stuff like that to you and there is no consequences for them. Yeah, there's yeah. no repercussions. And if I could recommend, since I grew up in a Catholic school system, I will tell you, and I survived the Catholic school system and catechism, I will tell you that my favorite movie as a kid was Heaven Help Us with Kevin McCarthy and uh, Kevin McCarthy. Jeez, it's not Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Andrew McCarthy and uh, Matt Dillon. And they're in in a Catholic school in the 60s. And spoilers, some chaos breaks out. Andrew McCarthy decks this uh, monk this brother that's uh, that's teaching him history or philosophy in one of the schools and all the, it happens in front of this entire uh, auditorium during mass. Actually, it's not an auditorium. It's a church it happens during mass and all the kids lose their minds because they all want to take a shot at this guy. And the manga does that too. Like there's a teacher in the manga is very similar to this one and, and nobody's paying attention to him. You know, they're, they're, they're crushing the pills on the desk and snorting them like in class. It's great. Look at this shot here, this pan back. That's Otomo using his favorite films to construct uh, certain shots that he wants. See, this is right out of the manga. Yeah. And just, yeah, just the amount of layers too in each shot is you just don't see that a lot um, in animated films of this time. And yeah, this is around the point in the movie where it starts to split 
um, wildly from the manga series. Um, and Tetsuo's descent into madness obviously is a little bit quicker, although ironically, it seems like in the manga, he becomes evil faster, where in the movie, you kind of see the old Tetsuo and his humanity a little bit longer, and Kanada is fighting for that a little bit longer, where in, in the manga, it's kind of like Tetsuo immediately is overcome with power, and uh, he kills uh, Yamagata, his friend who they mentioned earlier, he kills him um, in the first volume. And then from that point on, Kanada is, is kind of vengeful towards Tetsuo, where in the movie, it's they're kind of more adversaries, more friends um, until the end. And and look what's happened to uh, Corey here. Corey who comes in later in, in the manga, uh, mm-hmm. who becomes a hugely influential role. Uh, and unfortunately, in, in the film, I think she shows up for the last five minutes just to just effectively just to die, which I I, th- I thought, like, what are you supposed to do when you compress like 3000 pages into two hours? Mm-hmm. You've got to do something. Uh, yeah. Lady Chiyoko, for example, is completely gone, in my opinion. Uh, but uh, the character of Corey, I thought, was just like this very endearing part of Tetsuo's character of trying to relate to something human and trying to figure out what he was dealing with in this adolescence and all these crazy chemicals going on. It was a whole lot deeper, and she added to that deepness to it. And it's, it's unfortunate that we, that we lost her as a character. or do we need that like did we need it kind of compressed because there did seem to be a lot in the manga that i didn't miss my one of my favorite podcasts is a podcast called the rewatchables by bill simmons who's from boston actually and he's heavily into sports it's the ringer.com you can find all this stuff but one of his sections was uh let's have a discussion over would this make a better six-part netflix series and with akira i would say "Mm, maybe if it was two parts that were three hours like Akira 1, Akira 2, right? Just condense those first uh, three volumes and then condense the last three volumes, right? You just call the first one Canada and you call the second one <laughs> Tetsuo. Yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking of if it would make a better TV show and other than, say, certain shows like Game of Thrones, um, maybe Lost at a certain time, I found a lot of TV shows struggle to get find that movie level budget that you kind of need to pull off uh, a story like this. And I think what they're doing with Dune coming up is that that first movie is essentially a part one. And if it does well successfully, there'll be a part two. So perhaps I was thinking maybe that could apply to an Akira live action. If they release like a, a part one, part two and first parts like three hours, I think I don't know. I feel like the cult status is enough where it it could make money in the theater. Yeah. I don't know though. Like I'd be interested to hear everybody's thoughts about whether this should ever be turned into live action because I think it's so. The answer is yes. The answer is always yes. I don't, I don't know because I, I've completely turned around on adult animation. I used to really not be a fan until I started watching like Archer And I really, I know, which is silly. I love Archer, but 
I think that there's a lot to be said about what you can do and how you can push the envelope with animation. I think that that in itself is a really interesting conversation because like, for example, with this, like, you know, maybe I'm just a prude with violence, but I, I find that I can stomach and analyze the violence a little bit better through animation. So maybe that's just my own opinion, but I just think animation can push conversations and visuals in a different way than live action can. That's just me. I want a live action, everything anime (laughs) given like a 25 year, right? My, my only, my only two rules, like particularly when it comes to the sex and the violence, it has to be done in a certain way. It has to be shot in in a, a certain respect. You have to respect your actresses that you hire to do something that's so vulnerable as them of the person, particularly in a modern era when you know it's not just going to be on disc forever. It's going to be at their fingertips on their phone forever. So whatever that actress is going to do or whatever that actor is going to do when he's going to cover himself with blood or, or, or uh, set himself on fire or like Tom Cruise hang from an airplane, you know, risking his life or get kicked in the nads or cry on screen like Brad Pitt famously did once. And everyone was like, what am I watching? Brad Pitt never cries, right? Uh, whenever you do that, you, you have to do it in, in a, a certain way. You look at this scene here. These are prostitutes. Mm-hmm. You're going to hire, I mean, Hollywood has a very checkered history with showing hookers on screen. And one of their favorite motifs is the hooker with the heart of gold. We all know that is not how prostitution works. We all know that it is a sex slave trade that Mm -hmm. injures millions of people worldwide. And it doesn't do too good of a job to the men that, that purvey it. Right. And uh, how can you show Akira with all of this violence and still get the point across, but more, more important to me is how are you going to ask a female to go through that role and do these things that are specifically in the manga to recreate something live action. That to me would be the big challenge to make it cool, to make it exciting. I go back to rollerball. Rollerball in the 70s was a, a great film that had one aspect of that, was the brutal violence, which was, hey, this is what we're headed to. Does everybody really want to go this route? When they remade Rollerball, they said, this is going to be a hard R. This is going to be full frontal nudity. Rebecca Romaine is going to be in it. Um, the dude from American Pie is going to show his dick, and there's going to be blood everywhere. And I was in, directed by John McTiernan, uh, you know, I was in, I was told I would have, I would have bought that ticket twice. And then I went to go see it and it was horrible. And, uh, they scaled down the violence way much and they almost cut out all of the nudity. And I'm not saying that was the problem with the film. Clearly there were, there was a production choice in somebody's mm-hmm. office that said, we need to scale all of this back. And right. that ultimately hurt the vision. And McTiernan just hasn't been the same director since. Yeah, not even LL Cool J could save that film. <laughs> and he saves every film. He's in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it'd be interesting for a live action because a lot of the violent events are pretty triggering, especially for modern audiences. I mean, we just watched the, the theater bombing scene immediately followed by uh, cops with uh, assault rifles mowing down people. I mean, that's to that's a double punch of uh hot topic triggering events right there so yeah it's an interesting conversation this scene where k especially yeah where k um 
kills the cop for the first time. This is different from the manga. And I like this. I like this change because in the manga, she's a part already a part of the rebellion. It seems like, but this is kind of her initiation. Initiation. Yeah. yeah great word. It's like, she has a time to sit with like her first kill and the guy doesn't just die he <laughs> drowns in his own blood in sewage with his face half off i mean that th- i think that's a great change to her character and like now you understand based on just her expression that she hasn't killed before and now she's like okay i'm in it and the like, stakes are raised yeah for her yeah yeah and now she's i mean all the chips are on the table what is she going to do? I mean, if she's ever caught with this crime, et cetera, et cetera. People kind of forget that other societies don't have these Puritan values that we inherited from not just the founding, but from, you know, living a hundred years in the Victorian era and America being basically founded as an evangelical society. We've got these mores that just don't apply to other, to other countries. I remember when I was in France on tour and we, my wife and I were watching TV and they had this, you know, shampoo commercial and there was a woman nude in the shower on TV Like you could never, ever, 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 ever get away with that. Like they, they showed half of JLo's side and all the world freaked out. Well, all the world, all of America freaked out. Like it was, it was crazy. Japan is a much more violent society and Japan has always been torn, particularly in, in this era. The 80s, people kind of forget, it was only 40 years. 1984 was only 40 years after the war. My grandfather was in his 60s, and he was a combat infantryman in Europe. He had living memory of the war, and he was passing it on to me. Like, imagine in Japan, there were millions of veterans that were still alive in Japan at the time, and most of them had not served against the American army. Most of those guys were dead. The ones that were still alive were the ones that served in China, and had committed all kinds of horrible atrocities that they had gotten away with pretty much, right? Like the stuff you did against the Americans, we'll shoot you for that. We'll put you on trial. But if, as long, if you killed 100,000 Chinese, hey, no one's going to care. And there, there are mores uh, in Japanese society being very different in, in TV, in film. Uh, if you ever seen Branded to Kill, how they portray the female nude as opposed to the male nude, it's, it, they stick with these very conventions that, strangely enough, follow into pornography, and hentai and everything else that just makes you want to shake your head. Like, what are you guys doing? The Greeks have been open about this for 2000 years. Right. But to American sensibilities, man, this seems kind of violent and it just seems kind of, uh, there's, there's too much nudity. Like in the beginning in the bar, there's a guy with his like hand up this girl's shirt and she doesn't seem like she's having a good time. This just instantly makes you uncomfortable for a two hour screening. Right. And I think that shocked a lot of American viewers, but in Japan, it probably, probably wasn't so shocking yeah that that moment when is it k who or Corey who's whose uh shirt gets oh, ripped Corey. through yeah. the front yeah uh, Carrie. Yeah. yeah that that was really intense for me the first time i watched that and i mean it's it still is intense it still really affects me because they like full-on punch her in the mouth it, it, that's that's really intense i i think you're right there is a really short hop between the toxic masculinity and the power structure that so quickly shuffles out into this movie and that like sexual violence. And it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot to think about and see visualized on screen too. And as we go down into the depths, just to find number 28, I want to bring up one of the most famous movies of all time, which I think about it every time I watch Akira 
Can you guess which movie? I'll give you one shot. Three, two, one. Jaws. Where is Akira? For this whole film, where is Akira? And, and where is he in the manga? He doesn't show up in the manga until like the, what, it was the end of uh, part three? At the end of two? Yeah. Akira is the shark in Jaws. He's, He's Bruce. Yes, yeah. gotcha. That's really smart. I did not think about that. There's this scene by scene, Bill K. First of all, I was confused the first time I rented this on home video and took it home. And it was the, who's this Canada guy? Where's Akira? Is his name Akira? He's on the cover. He's in, this must be Akira with the bike. No, that's not it at all. Right? Yeah. This is yeah. complete switcheroo. And, and then at the ending for him to show up for basically a minute, you know, and this is just as straight out of uh, the third man where we're talking about Harry Lyme for 45 minutes. The dude doesn't show up until like the fifth reel. Mm-hmm. And you then know, Harry Lyme hits. Yeah. I was thinking too, we talked a lot about how there are a lot of influences on stranger things from Akira. And that's very similar to 11 because I don't think that we get to the research facility until like, I don't know, halfway through episode one or season one. And then we finally meet 11 and it's like, wait a second. Like, who is this? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, it's very similar. But that goes back to Otoma's very unique view of timing. So Otoma had a cinematic mind even when he was doing this stuff in the 70s. So he tried to pace the amount of time that you spent reading each panel of the manga, even if you were just flipping through it. And when he filmed this, he kept the same timing that he went from scene by scene. They only need so many seconds to see this. They only need so many seconds to see this. They only need so many seconds to see this. That never left his head. And he is deliberately building scene after scene. It's cold. We have to keep it cold. We have to keep it down in the earth. We have to keep it dark. We have to keep it away from people. We have to keep it away from everybody. And nobody can know about this. And you only get that sense after 15 minutes of screen time of him very deliberately showing you that what's going on. And everyone is concerned about it cold. Everyone is concerned about the cryogenics. Why is it? And he just hits that theme and he hits it hard. And then he shows you this. And by this point, if you're not in the movie, I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm lost. Uh, you've had biker gangs. Uh, you've had uh, extreme violence. You've had uh, supernatural occurrences. You've got some weird kids running around. If, if you're not sold by this point, then you, you just, I can't help you. And great artwork, by the way, not just by Otomo. Yatsumitsu Sataki. Makoto Shiyosaki, Satoshi Takatanabe, and Satoshi Khan. So Satoshi Khan was also the director. He directed uh, Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, and Paranoia Agent. All of those were huge hits. Not as big as Akira, but they were huge hits. Yeah, I... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think it's... We talked about this in our episode as well, but the ability for an artist to go from their own still work and bring it to life on the screen must have been absolutely beautiful. And I think that Otomo colored some of his uh, manga, but not for the original books. Uh, Like we have it in black and white. And so for me to go from that to the screen and sort of see how much of a, like this was Otomo's baby. Like you can see that, like you were talking about things as subtle as someone adjusting their shoulders like that's a very intentional choice. And they did, they put so much work into this because it meant so much to that team, I think. And you can just see it like all over this piece. It's just beautiful. 
Well, I've got the budget here somewhere. The budget for this was, it was not outrageous. So this, this is what gets me. Okay. Um, Akira's budget was not outrageous. Akira is the most popular manga from Japan worldwide. But in Japan, if you actually look at what is the most popular there, it's not Akira. Akira's in the top 10. People are constantly pointing out um, Howl's Moving Castle or uh, Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind as number one or number two. Akira is always like five or nine or something. But there's, there's a very obvious shift in Japanese expectations. But if you ask anybody in France, you know, what's the famous Japanimation film? They're going to say Akira. I'll try to find the budget. I, I wrote it down here somewhere. It was uh, 10 million. Was it? 10 million. That's what okay. I thought it was. So, so putting, putting this in, into perspective, okay, because I'm going to shock you with a fact after I read this 300 page about DreamWorks uh, Studios, which blew my mind. Shrek. The first film will never be paid off. Let me say that again. <laughs> Shrek, what? as a film, was so expensive, it will never be paid off. It was Katzenberg throwing money into a toilet and flushing it for seven years. The reason what? DreamWorks has, has shut down and sold off their innovation division here and their life studio division here and their licensing over here is because they, can't, they never got out of the Shrek hole. They made an enormous amount of money with Shrek 2 that disappeared into the hole of Shrek 1. Get out of here. Stealing all the artists from Disney, setting up places to put them to, it, it just – and, and uh, skyrocketing costs and reprogramming everything uh, to make – to get certain scenes out. Uh, re-recording the lead actor three times who wanted three times the fee. Well, if you want me to do it again, I'll do it again, but I'm not going to spend six weeks here and, and not get paid. Yes, yes. Who recorded it? And they set it aside because they didn't think that it fit. And then Mike Myers did it, and he got paid once. And then they said, this isn't working. And he said, well, how about I do it like my dad in a, in a Canadian-Scottish accent? Uh, that's not going to work. Well, let me show you. And he got paid again. Wow. I didn't know he'd been paid twice. That's yeah. insane. So all of those costs add up. Now, I don't know how much he was paid, but you know, Mike Myers in the late 90s, can you imagine? It was probably close to $350,000. So you spend a million dollars on an audio actor like this. This is insane. Yeah. I mean, Matt Damon did Titan AE, I think for like 50 grand because it was a week's worth of his work. Really? really? Yeah. It was very cheap. Titan AE was very cheap despite the impact that it had. Yeah. <laughs> I, love that. I love that movie. Yeah. I love it too. I have a soft place in my heart for treasure planet. Oh yeah. Me too. I saw that. I saw that as a youngin on my birthday. Yeah. Yeah. That's an unsung classic. I think uh, another one of those I think is Atlantis. I love that yeah. movie. And, and I feel like Pass. that's never, Oh really? Oh, <laughs> that's another one that I think is wonderful, but yeah, we could go on a whole separate. Yeah, we can go on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should talk about this scene. The first, uh, the first uh, print of the Takamon was 300,000 pages when it, when it was sold <gasps> and one copy was a hundred thousand yen. So yes, okay. So this this scene right here is is right out of uh, Doctor Strange Loves. You've got the circular table. You've got the light above it. This is the war room. This guy here on the right with the Hitler stash. That's George C. Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the president here who was played by Peter Sellers. And you've got this whole ring of people who always know know better. And uh, the colonel is is trapped. And there's a guy in the Strange Love that looks. There's the president there on the left. Looks like Peter Sellers. This entire scene is very constructed to look exactly like. 
that Kubrickian uh, nightmare, which is you cannot fight in the war room. And what are they doing right here? They're fighting in the war room. The only thing missing out of the scene is the Russian ambassador in a pie fight. Oh, yes. Well, like I say, little things coming out of big men and big things coming out of little men. Mm -hmm. Right. There's an inverse reaction. And Nezu, just the corrupt, ultra corrupt official. Right. Who actually I just found in the manga just entirely fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That religious this uh, is a Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. Blade Runner. Yeah. Right out of Blade Runner. Such a Blade Runner shot. I was just going to say that. Yeah, especially 2049 with uh, yeah Jared Leto's compound. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And even yeah, even the color the color scheme in that shot is with like the the ambers and the oranges and the hues is a, a direct lift by 2049 from from that. And this scene, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe this scene is in the manga where the uh, espers attack Tetsuo with their uh, telekinesis, like making the bear. This, this whole scene I found just extraordinarily confusing the first time I watched it. And, oh, yeah. and you, you, have to, you have to give people a lot of leeway when they watch Akira the first time. It is so strange. This scene, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, it's not like uh, spirited away or anything, but it, it, there are things going on that people are just not going to catch on the first time. I was actually like, what is actually happening in Tetsuo's room? I don't, I don't particularly get it. And even when uh, I think, is it Masuro who's putting the, the big bad bear together and they're trying to intimidate Tetsuo, even when it's, it's revealed that the man behind the curtain is this uh, small aged child. I didn't particularly get it all the way. The telekinesis wasn't as obvious to me. It took repetitive viewings. And definitely in the manga, it comes across way better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And they blow out in the in the manga. They really get into um, with a very important character that is shown on screen, I think, twice, very briefly, both times. And we almost are led to think that the character is male, but it's Lady Miyako who plays an immense role in the development of Tetsuo towards the latter third of the manga. But in terms of the powers, who the espers are, what the telekinesis is, you get a vastly more detailed understanding as to where it's coming from, why they're trying to understand it, who's been involved with kind of the government research projects in the past. Um, and they also go into the pills uh, much more. Um, they they om- almost don't even touch it really uh, from an explanatory uh, sense in the film, but in the manga, they, through Lady Miyako and Tetsuo's interactions, you come to understand what the pills are and what they do and how they affect kind of the development of these powers in the subjects that are taking them. Well, they're inhibiting um, him, aren't they, Ryan? The, the, they, pills, the capsules. they are, they are in, in, in one way, I think 
allowing him to cope with the onset of the powers. But if they're taken in a certain amount, they speed it up. Um, and, and, and it's almost, it, it almost becomes like a drug to him. Uh, there's, there's several scenes, I think in the manga where he's just got buckets. Oh, he's like things. Tony Montana on the big desk full oh, yeah. of Coke or uh exactly. favorite scene out of Queens Gambit when she takes the whole jar of the tranquilizers, yeah. right? And, and, and Lady Miyako warns him in the manga about abusing the, the pills and what they're going to do to speeding up basically, you know, the, the development of these powers and how quickly it can get out of control. There are ways in which it, it's kind of, it's kind of helping him in certain amounts. And then, and when it's abused, it, it kind of lets everything kind of get out of control. So I finally found the card. Akira grossed six times its budget and made 7 billion yen. Yeah. Oh, mine too. Yeah. And though they're not dropping that price for anybody, they don't, they don't care what no. the price is. I just got yesterday on Blu-ray on Amazon for like $6. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is unfair. This is, this is a Danny Boyle movie. It came out last year and it's, it's $6. I'm definitely getting it. I'm not complaining, but this is wrong. And then when I went to go uh, uh, buy Akira last month, they're like, oh my God, really? Right. Yep. Look at, look at Dune right now. Somebody has a arrow, I think just put out the long version of Dune in 84 and that's like 40 bucks. Is it really? Yeah. It's crazy. That's crazy. So this scene coming up right here, when I was a kid, the first time I saw this, this was the point for me that blew my mind was just right here. Yeah. And I remember like staring at the TV and right here when it shows the carnage up close and everything dripping and falling from the ceilings was you know, I, I don't even I, I don't think that at the time I thought anything like, oh, this is an action movie. This is cool. I was more shocked and just aghast at what, you know, when I was a kid thinking a cartoon, because I, I didn't have any understanding as to what this was. I just, you know, oh, it's animated. It must I, I, I guess I slapped the cartoon label on it, but it was this just kind of shift in perspective as uh, in my view of animation um, just with all the violence and, and the uh, I guess that, I mean, that was a shot of gore for sure. Um, But when I was a kid, that was one of the most impactful moments of the entire film for me. Um, Just realizing I was watching something different than what I thought I was watching. I think. to a child not, or, you know, a teenager not understanding their power and having it explode from within them. Like that has real consequences. Yeah. And as this isn't exactly a hot take, but we're both big stranger things fans. Um, and especially season one has direct shots of 11 in the hallway, uh, dealing with, the evil scientists. And um, again, I'm not saying that Stranger Things is bad or they fully 
ripped off Akira, but they owe a lot, a lot of their inspiration from that famous uh, green hallway scene. I think going back to the conversation about what you can do with animation, like I think Stranger Things could never have done that kind of gore. And I think as much as I am uncomfortable with it, because it's scary to think about people like getting, you know, blown into little bits that that fall off the ceiling, like that there are stakes in here that I just don't know if you could do in, um, or give, um, uh, or get as much out of that if you did it in, uh, live action, but I don't know. It'd have to be like rated R, 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 R. Right. Maybe. Well, it was supposed to be, there was supposed to be a rating for that NC-17. And mm-hmm. one quarter of all films coming out of Hollywood were supposed to be hit with that label. So it was not a stigmata. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely failed uh, to cause a dent. Mm-hmm. Well, and we just watched Handmaiden, which is a beautiful movie, but that's still unrated in the States because of the, I guess, sexual violence. But I think there are ways to do it. Yeah. Yes. Do it right. Yeah, loosed mord is what the Germans say. Sexual violence. They actually have a word for it. I know that shocks everybody. The Germans have a word for something <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> Sexual murder. Yeah. I'm surprised it's not a longer word. <laughs> yeah. No, that's also true. Uh, the, the turning point in the, in the hallway, there's, there's several things going on all in one moment. It, it is, it's a turning point for Tetsuo. Now he's a murderer. And and actually now now is the point in the in the film where I lose all sympathy for him, and he's a he he is now a villain. Whereas in in the manga, he's able to carry out this duality for actually quite a long time, and particularly when, when Corey comes into the picture, in in volume five and volume six, and and uh, she she escapes being a victim. Uh, well, she's a victim of his anyway. She's a, his sexual slave to begin with. But when when uh, he basically intends to kill her, and when she escapes out of that, it's almost like the cleverness. Like he he respects the fact that she's not like the others. Like she's smarter. She's ahead of the pack, and therefore she she turns into almost like this maternal figure to to try to take care of him. And uh, that elicited more sympathy for his character in, until the very end, where I just could not wait for someone please get rid of Tetsuo. I'm tired of why is Akira just letting him continue on like this, right? if he is so all powerful, but Akira is ambivalent. Mm-hmm. Akira, Akira just wants to play with rocks. He's a, he's a child. Mm-hmm. The, all these grown up games, these, these things don't concern me, right? You do it. Cause you can't hurt me anyway. Right. So you just go ahead and you play your little biker games and you argue over girls and do all that stuff. And you take your drugs. I don't care. I'm going to continue playing with my rocks until you start disturbing my universe. That's when I'm going to crush you. Yeah, that's a really good point because it's kind of the difference between people who are fighting for power, but like they'll never have it or they don't deserve it versus someone who has all the power and can just sort of point a finger and say like, I don't like this, zap. The scene we just, I say the scene we just watched, I noticed that the the Darth Vader scene in Rogue One looked very similar to that of uh, just an imposing force at one end of a red hallway mowing down people at the other it, it looked look rogue one took direct inspiration you just made me very happy danny <laughs> rogue one reference yeah i 
Well, I just, and to Larry, your point in terms of struggle for power, I was thinking about this and like, I, I remember on our pod, on your podcast, when we did Akira, you know, a, a, what about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, um, I mentioned that every time I watch this, I, I see something that I didn't see before. And Dylan, when you were talking about the descent into the, the kind of cryogenics laboratory, I, I, I always remark to myself about the, the view of, you know, when, when you're looking, when you, you think you're going to look at like a freezer, basically like a nice organized kind of like locker where all this, all these things are stored or whatever your valuable, whatever you value is in there that you're keeping away preserved. And it's just basically a door with, it looks like over time, they've just struggled to, in a very disorganized way, patch on tubes and plates and vents and cooling lines into this kind of monstrosity that just has grown out. And it looks so disorganized. It just looks haphazard, um, almost like they're just scrambling to add on bits and pieces to keep this thing stable. And it, and and to me, through this conversation, I was like, that's a that's a kind of a metaphor for struggle for power throughout this whole thing, especially from a from like an authoritarian or an authority struggling for power over something that they do not understand and doing everything they can to try to control it. Um, and it shows how unsuccessful they are because that disorganization leads, you know, makes you think about, okay, well, they're, you know, what's going wrong here? What are they not doing right? Um, and I, I just think it's a great shot every time we see it. And it's almost referenced, you know, in the war room with the round table and how everything is just kind of, the papers are everywhere. Everybody's screaming. It's frenetic and, and, and chaotic. And, and it's, it's almost like those two kind of coexist as, as a reference to the same thing because, because they're both basically commenting on the same thing. Yeah. And at the same time, there's a dichotomy going on. All the adults do is talk and the kids, they do. Right. Right. The kids are fighting right now in a playroom and the, the adults were in a war room and they're just shouting at each other. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention the difference in animation with the the kids area with that castle and the we saw it earlier, but there's a shot of a sort of stone engraving, which has like Sleeping Beauty and the Seven Dwarves, I think, kind of around her. And even with the toys, too, it's so interesting to watch how Otomo's kind of pointing a finger at Disney and saying, like, this is what you do. And like this is not as good as what I do. <laughs> cause cause those just look very caricature and kind of googie. And I think it's just fun to see that. I feel like that was like a, maybe a little poke at Disney. Like you're not as good as me. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's true. Cool. I, I mean, I saw it as kind of like a comment on, you know, uh, castles are typically in film considered uh, conservative bastions. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and in here, there's obviously the sleeping beauty reference because, because who's the sleeping beauty in this case? It's Akira. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think all three of those interpretations have, have room. And to think that uh, Otomo, particularly, I don't not familiar with uh, his other work, but when I read uh, the manga and I watch the film, he's very much like um, uh, Kubrick, and then I would say David Fincher in that case of if he cared to put it in your vision, yes. it was for a reason, right? Absolutely. Like even those little hearts on the castle flags, you look at that and you're like, this is such a different space. Like I think it it sets up the children 
spaces very differently and very well. I love this shot right here with with the turret from the sled bobbing in and out of the the frontal kind of shot of Canada uh, and K. There's real danger. Yeah. There's there's real palpable danger going on. Was it? They, he just flips it real quick, and you're staring down the barrel of a three barrel minigun, and it's just it's it's glaring. To bring up Star Wars again, the uh, what they're that they're riding very similar to Return of the Jedi, and yeah. I think if I'm not mistaken, the manga first the first volume came out before Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi was eighty three. So I think those um, copters predate Return of the Jedi. That's interesting. And there's a there's a backdrop in the playroom where you saw it very briefly. It might show up again. I mean, it looks like Bespin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is a sci-fi cloud city type of thing. And Otomo said, if you want to be a great manga artist, don't read manga. Watch first-rate films. Listen to first-rate music. And read first-rate books. I'm sure the Japanese for first-rate is different. Sure. Yeah, I, I read that he was a fan growing up of manga, and he he just changed. He wanted his style to be more illustrative. And I, I mean, I, I haven't read a lot of manga, but again, I think this style is just so particular. He had 70 animators work on this. They had 327 colors. Wow. 327 colors. Like I think I think the most colors pre-Akira is like 150 or something like that. I I I sometimes watch and try to figure out what kind of colors are particular to this movie. Out of curiosity too, I actually googled how much a an original 1988 cell would cost to purchase from the movie. And they range anywhere from six thousand to like fifteen thousand up, which I think is pretty cool. I've looked into different cells for myself because I kind of grew up being a Scooby Doo fan, so I've always wanted one of those original Hanna Barbera cells to put on my wall. But those are also just so expensive. Um, but wouldn't it be incredible to have one of these on your wall? Just oh my, you just you just made that a life goal of mine. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Shaggy running forever and ever and ever. It's just one of those things. Like I, I've had that on my, you know, if I ever have a million dollars, that's like one of the first things that I'm going to buy. And, you know, cells are priced based oh on God. the, the still that what was going on during the movie. So if it's a more pivotal scene, that cell will be more expensive or if it's an iconic clip of something, it'll be more expensive. And I just, I was looking at some of these and like, there are some really cool ones for sale. Oh, yeah. Instead of saving up for a wedding, let's <laughs> funnel our funds to that because exactly. that sounds cooler. <laughs> yeah. So if you ever get a chance, um, episode 333 on the Projection Booth podcast with Mike White, who we were talking about earlier, he brought on Jonathan Clements, who's author of Anime a History, and they spoke for about an hour, and he addressed that very topic about wow. how uh, they chopped up a lot of the celluloid that came to the United States um, and they were going to give it away <gasps> effectively. Like if you bought uh, a manga book at a, at a Comic-Con, then they were going to give you a cell of Akira 
What? Because Akira had opened in, uh, you know, a normal theater release back then, 5,000 theaters, 7,000 was a lot. Most, most were three to 5,000. And really for Akira, like, I think they ran 500 or 1,000. So there were not that many copies. But instead, what these people were doing was instantly framing them and then selling them. Of and course. In- yeah. Instantly selling them for three and $500. And the, you know, the stupid people in, in Hollywood who, who decided to do this, the distributors, they're like, oh, we lost out on millions of dollars of, of revenue. And that changed everything. Then after that, Disney was like, what do we have around here of course. that we can, because uh, today, for example, um, I, we mentioned before the podcast about how I went to go see Harry Potter 7 part one, right? That film does not exist on film. It was right. shot on digital. The president of Warner Brothers went to a party in Beverly Hills and met Quentin Tarantino. They knew each other and they talked about uh, Harry Potter and Tarantino said, I want to show that at the new Beverly. And the guy said, uh, okay, great. I will give you one as a gift. And it cost Warner Brothers $50,000 to print that onto celluloid just so Tarantino could show it three times (laughs) at a complete loss. Right. That's one of the reasons why it was there. And, and, uh, uh, just think about how many frames that you have. We already know that a two-hour movie is going to have, what did I say, 172,000 frames, right? Mm-hmm. And chopping those up and you selling them for $500. Like that is a business in of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like with the recent resurgence in boutique stores like Etsy, uh, boutique online stores, I feel like Akira anything would make a killing there. It, it currently is. And it feel Ryan brought this up um, in our episode, but this film just keeps on cycling through every 10 years, a kind of a cultural resurgence. Like, you know, in the early two thousands, it was like Kanye West with his music video with showing the green um, hallway. And then just, recently with like ready player one with the bike that olivia wilde rides or not olivia wilde excuse me um olivia olivia wilde's in tron she yes yeah i'm i'm, I'm mixing up but, but that's olivia, okay olivia um, she's in thoroughbreds yeah that actress but anyways yeah it's just it keeps this movie just keeps on cycling through generation and she generation. played artemis yes yeah and she, she rode akira's bike in ready player one you know, going back to the live action uh, discussion and to the point of this kind of coming in waves culturally, you know, every few years or so, I think that, I mean, there's been times where I've seen, you know, uh, something that's been reworked or a live action version of something that I'm like, oh, and then I find out it it was adapted from something or there was a previous version. I mean, I think if, if this were, you know, fingers crossed one day we'll get it. But if a live action version were to come out, it would open it up to a, to several generations of people that might not even be aware that it was a film or an animation from the eighties. And that this is, you know, uh, you know, an adaptation or, uh, just a remake and that in turn just gets the original work so much more exposure and then we'll give the original manga so much more exposure too. So it, I, I mean, I think that 
I, I can't really argue against that for myself. I think that that would be valid reason enough to make a live action remake um, of this, just just to bring awareness into what Akira is to a much wider swath of of people. Well, there's two sides to that, right? There's like, quite frankly, I could do with, without most of these Disney live action remakes. Like I, I really think that they're enormous cash grabs. Like I, I saw the jungle book and the jungle book was really impressive and I don't want to besmirch the image of John Favreau in any way, but I could have done without that movie. Right. And, and I don't think that it added anything to what we had to say. And if we're, if we're going to do the same thing with some of these animes, um, and we'll take Ghost to the Shelf to exactly to your point, Ghost in the Shell had an enormous impact in people who were not exposed to the manga. So it drove people back to go to the manga. And what you find is the people that like that Johansson version are also fans of, of the manga, but not vice versa. I'm like the only standout. I'm the only one who read Ghost of the Shell 25 years ago and like the live action. I've never met anyone else who, who, you know, has that, but I also prefer the remake of total recall. So we already know that I'm a weird bird. Interesting. I don't care for the first (laughs) one at all. So, uh, so although, although I'm against in general, um, live shooting any anime, I want to preface that by saying that if you're going to do it, do it, go all the way, make a cure a hard R and make your point about Japanese society. This society in the 1980s was torn apart. People kind of forget that the militarism that was ruling the country and the oligarchy that was in charge um, in the 1940s, it wasn't totally gone. It was kind of like Germany and the Federal Republic in the post-war period still had Nazis running companies like Mercedes-Benz, who were in charge of labor unions. All of that was still going on. And in the 60s and 70s were all of these kids who finally just woke up and said, mom and dad, what did you do during the war? And they didn't like the answer. And I think what you have is this, uh, this cultural revolution that's happening in animation, paralleling it. It's, it's going at the same time as these kids who are asking these very real questions about violence, about sex, about morality. And it, you just have this uh, cross-pollination, if I could use that word. It just happens in parallel at the same time. And he's commenting on a lot of that. And everybody kind of forgets now, of course, Americans have no fucking clue. We forced Japan to sign a treaty in 1951 that said, you will be our friend. You don't have a choice. You have to do what we say. And then that treaty was renewed in 1960. It said, not only, not only does the first treaty really apply, but now you have to like it. And then it was up for renewal again in 1970. And that's what a lot of the riots in 68 and 70 were all of the kids saying, we are not signing this damn treaty again. And they did. And it was for life. And the only, the only um, uh, modifications for the 1970 treaty have been made is, okay, you can have a defense force now. Mm. That's pretty much it. And uh, the trauma of, of not being able to have your, your own uh, military to defend yourself in, in any given situation. You know, we did the same thing to Germany, except for when it suited us. Like, oh, Germany can have an army. As long as we think the Russians are, are, are a problem, then Germany can have an army. Well, are you kidding me? They're going to be staffed with Nazis because that's the only experience people we have around. Oh, well, you have to make some camp- compromises. You know, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break an eggs type of scenario. Mm-hmm. It was the same way in Japan. You know, you got to keep the telephones working. You know, so what if that guy uh, murdered 300,000 Chinese? 
Yeah, and this, and during the eighties, you see a lot of works depicting kind of the generational trauma of past wars or like the wars of um, your mothers and fathers. Like uh, Watchmen came out around the same time as this, deals with the same exact topic of in the past there was a thing um an event that happened that now collectively we're all dealing with like a war but in watchmen it was uh a manipulated mass explosion um over over a course of certain cities and especially the tv show watchmen and and uh this uh, akira deals with then the metaphorical fallout of that, which is the next generation of people have now having to deal with that with everyone who initially dealt with that is now either dead or they can't provide a meaningful answer. So you're kind of stuck in this apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's really insightful because you're right. Like the violence, the cycle of violence, like you just talked about when the movie opens with the explosion and how that's also how it ends and how, like, if we can't move past the emotional trauma of stuff like Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and all of the fallout from world war two, like, you know, how do we emotionally process that? And how do we make sure that it doesn't repeat itself? Like, I think that that moving on is a really like, sort of informative idea in this whole movie. Yeah. And it was the eighties. So the cold war was still mm-hmm. going on at that point and that it, it wasn't, I would say the height of it, uh, of, of tensions, but certainly that was on the collective consciousness. Of course, yeah. How of, are we not going to repeat yeah. another? And there was an active explosion. Japanese communist party mm-hmm. during the entire length of the cold war. No, all of that is relevant. Absolutely. You dumb bastard is, is one of my favorite. <laughs> Apparently that is not the, in the original Japanese, the you dumb bastard. There's oh, a few no. things that are, that are kind of off to no one's surprise. So teleportation is now added to the list of skill sets. If you're mm-hmm. in the espers, but what's kind of not clear in in the film that's very here, which is very clear in the manga is that K is being used mm-hmm. by the espers to spy on, uh, on what's going on with Canada and Tetsuo. And she is being deliberately manipulated um, to try to solve this problem with, with Tetsuo. This was another one of my favorite aspects of the manga. And now the movie of, oh, oh, we're getting the, one of the most iconic oh, that's Terminator shots coming. That's Terminator yeah. 2. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, uh, of the, I was saying one of my favorite aspects is, yeah, the Esper's controlling uh, another person. And just recently we, Laura and I read Dr. Sleep, which is very similar in that uh, the sequel to uh, The Shining. Uh, we actually really liked it. it. It seems kind of like a hot take. Dr. Sleep doesn't seem that well regarded, the book at least. But that there's something so fascinating to me about someone with telepathy controlling someone else because it is like a complete and total like violation of your mental space that you can't even comprehend. It just, it really fascinates me. When you hear that all the time in the X-Men films with Jane Gray, like, did you just read my mind without my permission? 
Yeah, yeah. Like that's in the Dark Phoenix, right? Yeah, that's exactly what happens in Doctor Sleep. There's a young girl who's able to like astral project her mental everything into other people or into specifically people who have the shining. But yeah, that's very. No, I, I read Doctor Sleep um, when I was on my you know Stephen King kick and. I mean, that's, that's an exceptional book. That's one of his best books. You know, oh, thank you. I don't, I don't want to get too so far away from Akira, but I was dragging my feet going into that because The Shining is one of my absolute favorite books. So the first hundred pages, I was like, I don't want to read this. And then I was like, God damn it. Stephen King has done it again. <laughs> he, <laughs> he hooked me and I love this book and I read it in like a week and yeah. it's 600 plus pages. So he it's just going to go on my long list of things we have to discuss on the special report. Yeah. Oh my God. It's such a good book. 783 scenes in Akira and the entire film was pre-recorded. So they yes, recorded the I voice. Read that. Yeah. That's really interesting. I read that that's more of an American style of animated uh, features, mm-hmm. but, and usually in, in, uh, yes, and anime, it's the other way around. I don't know why. Because, like because Disney found out that it was driving audiences crazy, that the mouth was not matching the words. Yeah. And when they drew Akira, Otomo was very careful of this has to match. Never thinking for us, oh, this is going to be translated and, and dubbed in English. And it's not going to match anyway. Right. Because the Japanese market is only like 20% of the people who are buying Akira. Yeah. But it, it doesn't matter. It matches in Japanese. Yeah. And here's the iconic Ohashi score and uh, Tetsuo emerging from the fire. Just, just the score. I mean, one of the all-time... Great. It's in so intense. And this oh, is, yeah, cave. where he gets his cave. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, it's from this point on, the movie is just, well, it's iconic to begin with, but now this is kind of an extended fight scene all the way to the end. And it is just breathtaking. Well, this me. is the Matrix. You know, yeah. The oh, yes. coming and stopping and, and the whole, the whole situation and a little bit of Iron Man at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and a little bit of The Incredibles. <laughs> and The Chronicles. And it, it, it really is a, a film that's it's really quite forward. Yeah. And as far as having sympathy with a lot of the writers and, and showing the different sides of what's going on. And then there's a coup going on at the same time that everybody just kind of forgets about. And the manga, the, the coup is hugely important to what's going on. Yeah, I, I think I mentioned this earlier and I kind of lost my train of thought. But the religious subplot is pretty fully taken out of the anime that's not really discussed at all, but it's something that I found interesting in the manga because when you have kind of a falling apart of society, religion is something that will very quickly filter to the top. And so <laughs> I thought it was, an, yeah, like I thought it was a really good addition, a really interesting addition because I think religion is interesting. I'm an atheist, but I think it's interesting to study and just see how it affects people who are going through a crisis. Yeah, agreed. It, it was a tad disappointing to see, that, having read the manga, then to see that um, uh, fully removed from the film. And I think also this subplot with Nezu, perhaps not given the time of day to properly resonate um, in the film. Mm-hmm. Maybe something if they created a an expanded yeah. series that this could be dug into a little deeper. It's really hard to ignore that, particularly in Japanese society, which is so heavily Shinto and, and Buddhist and so forth. Not so much Taoist, 
you can't separate that from, well, I mean, the religion in Japan, it's more like, it's more like a way of life. It's not really a religion. A lot of people, mm-hmm. a lot of Americans can turn on their religion on Sunday and then they can turn it off. <laughs> or like yeah. we used to say, it's, oh, they're cafeteria Catholics. They believe in abortion, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. You can take what you want and you can leave the rest. Mm-hmm. And in the East, it's not really, it's more pliable. It's more flexible, uh, but it's in, it's in everyday life and it's in everything that you see. And the and the religious aspect, particularly in the latter half of the manga, when 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 Akira becomes this godlike figure, mm. and literally the 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 Tankoban four has him like on on the throne, right, with a scepter. It's it's really quite crazy. But you know, separating religion from anything is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another iconic scene, I think, is that on the cover? When he's in front of the... Oh, the cover's when he's in the motorcycle. He's kind of sitting in a side profile. And to give you an idea of how popular animated films were in the 1970s, there were 49 animated films in Japan between 1970 and 1979. Wow. 1980, 1989, there were 220. There's a five-fold increase. And if you included shorts in the 90s, it would it would quintuple again. Wow. Uh, there's Lady Miyako. Yeah. Yeah, voiced by a man. Well, right. Fear not. So this really, I mean, this is kind of crazy. I don't know if you've seen Contact with uh, Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, th- there's that scene where she's driving through the the desert to get back to the um, the satellites, and now the word is out that they've received this image, and this image is uh, from outer space. Is of who? It's of Hitler. Mm-hmm. So the entire desert is full of neo Nazis and um, atheists and people having arguments that have nothing to do with what's actually going on. And I saw the riot that Otomo put in, particularly in the film of this riot of these people who don't actually know what's going on. They just have a, a click or a point of view, or they belong to a subset uh, that has a, an agenda that nobody really cares about. It actually kind of reminded me, um, I guess, I think it was around 2003. It was, it was right before um, uh, we invaded Iraq. There was this enormous peace protest in San Francisco that went on the uh, whole weekend and it made national news across the country. And it was the most insane thing I'd ever seen. There were, uh, there were anti-Semites there. Uh, there were uh, uh, people who obviously just hated Bush. There was a true democratic movement there. And then there were just like wackos who just wanted to legalize weed. And this was, you know, 18 years ago. It's like, what is going on? And Bill Maher, actually, I don't like Bill Maher, but he actually made fun of it. What do we want? We don't know. When do we want it? As soon as we can figure out what it is, the hell do we want? Yeah, yeah that, was, that was a criticism of the... Uh the 1% movement out here too. Like there were a lot of people who were criticizing rich people, but you know, there wasn't a call for anything. And so that disbanded really quickly because it was like, if you don't have demands and you don't have a way to further those demands, then you're just people sitting outside. You could almost (laughs) say the same thing about what's going on here. Mm. Uh, These people are rioting. Why? And there's a coup. Why? And and you don't even have the idea of, are they for the coup or against the coup? They're just out there rioting. Now, this is the first time a computer was used to create an animation 
in a cartoon film. Ooh, interesting. With the uh, the energy field. Right, and that's uh, the scientist character is a character who survives um, the first act in the movie, but in the series he's killed off in uh, the end of volume two. So that's an interesting, they kind of front loaded, Ryan brought this up in our episode, but they front loaded a lot of character to the scientist and added, and then I I think just out of time, they couldn't put in that religious subplot. So that's why Lady Miyako is, I guess, argue, you could argue that it's like character assassination, but it's like more of a function of just time. So they removed her character, but Mm -hmm expanded the scientist and that enormous a, door that opens kind of reminds me of war games when they go into the bunker in norad mm. go ahead ryan the just the scientist's importance um in the film is 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 very present uh and it is in the manga too um but his his the frames in which he perishes are are some of the most striking to me um in the first part of the series it, there's there's an issue with closing or getting out of the cryogenic kind of area before a big locking door shuts and he gets caught in the cold without his um you know proper uh, equipment and he he's like instantly frozen solid in this in this laboratory and it's just a it's it's a striking i, I can still see it i can't remember which which volume it's in but it's <laughs> just interesting in terms of, you know, stark differences between the film and the, and the, and the manga, but it's also a, a really kind of striking point in the manga too, just seeing his, his arc kind of come in and be very heavy, but also quickly fade out pretty fast. You know, that reminds me of the freezing laboratory in Blade Runner. Yes. The, the, the eye, eye design. Yeah. 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 You know, with James Hong. Yeah. Really similar. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, the, the scientist dying in the manga had kind of a Game of Thrones effect. We were like, oh, okay, anyone can die um, at any any minute. Yeah, we haven't talked about the general, really. Oh, he's kind of pulled between a bunch of, I guess, political parties and obligations. and. Well, he got tired of, of the pencil pushers arguing all the time and not taking right. what was happening very seriously. So he decided to to uh, throw a coup, push Nezu out of power, who was uh, basically the prime minister, and uh, then take charge of the situation so, so that he could suppress Akira himself. Instead of waiting for their, their decision, he was just going to do it himself and so that he could save the day. Now, what his plan was after that, I don't know. He, <laughs> he, he had to have known, like, I, I could do this, and even if I stay, save the day, I could still just go to jail. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, to him, it was, it was worth it. Right. That was my quote in the beginnings. Like my job isn't to believe or not believe it's to act or not act. Right. Right. Something that that rising kind of globe reminds me of is, is a Krang in um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm. I mean, it's kind of a stretch reference, but just his, like the the dome that travels around in that in that series, and kind of the wires that are trailing off, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's very clunky in that sense. Also, very Incredibles, like the oh yeah at the end of that movie, but that's also a little bit of stretch. 
there was um there was a parallel that i saw of you know they're they're having the olympics in tokyo yeah. Mm. in the manga yeah. and in the film and of course we just had the olympics in tokyo and it was it was almost a disaster right i mean there were there were clearly things that i wouldn't say it was as big as a disaster as what happened in athens or or sochi but uh the japanese managed to to pull it off without having it completely uh embarrass everything that had ever happened but um in this situation they're they're specifically building the olympic compound on what's left of uh bombed out tokyo from this event that happened in 1988 and that's actually where they're keeping akira um in a some sort of cryogenic sedated state. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen uh, the Tokyo Olympiad, which is on the Criterion Collection. is It is the um, it is the commissioned film from the Tokyo Olympics of uh, 1960. And in a, in a way, it's the last important Olympics because it's the last Olympics that we had in which nobody really talked about politics. Mm. Every Olympics thereafter, there was a massacre, there was a shooting, or there was a hostage crisis, or what country are you holding in, or how much is this costing, or et cetera. But in 1960, Tokyo uh, won the Olympic bid uh, six years before that, and they cleared entire neighborhoods in Tokyo that had been bombed out from the war. Wow. And they got this infusion of cash from, you guessed it, the Americans, to build this enormous complex and they were using it very specifically to 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 regenerate a part of the city that they just simply did not have the capital to do. And it worked out extremely well for them. And it was this enormous success. And they addressed that in the film. Actually, the first shot of the Tokyo Olympiad uh, is these old buildings that you can tell are bombed out, being um, knocked down and bulldozed over in this new beautiful thing going in its place. It's really interesting you bring this up because we talked about or we touched on a little bit of Japanese history in our episode about Handmaiden because Japanese culture was so heavily influenced by Western cultures. Um, But when I was doing research about Akira, it talked about how in the 80s, Japan was trying to expand their like they're going back to their cultural roots and trying to figure out like, how are we not, you know, Westernized? How are we as a country and as a people, especially following world war two and how this movie kind of set off like a metaphorical bomb of how kind of expanding, like this is Japan and this is Japanese culture. And so those like the setup for that is how, heavily influenced the West was and how now like in the eighties it's transitioning to be like a fully Japanese um, influence Mm -hmm. kind of coming out of Japan. Yeah. And here with the the jars, we've discovered a cure now. (laughs) And, and this, this is what I would call, particularly if you watch this for the first time, probably the biggest letdown. Mm. Right. absolutely knocked me on my butt the first time I watched it. I'm so happy I read the manga first where Akira is such a prominent figure um, at the end of volume two forward. And to go into this movie, not knowing this quote unquote twist, it is, I can't think of a time where I so viscerally feel the disappointment that a character is feeling because like like Tetsuo, we, the viewer, are just waiting and waiting and waiting to see Akira. And Tetsuo has a literal link to him to then get to that point. 
is just such a jarring, like you said, and monumental letdown um, in, in the good way. Like, I'm not saying like it, Wait, it's you, that. You yeah. totally empathize with the character. Yeah. It's a way to get back to, onto Tetsuo's side in a sense after he's killed some people, at least momentarily. And at the same time, there's there's something else going on. I don't know if Otomo is doing this deliberately, but you guys know about Unit 731. It's mm-hmm. the secret Japanese unit that operated in China since 1932 to 1945 in which they were experimenting on, on live uh, patients in concentration camps. Yeah, uh, it was basically it's the same thing uh, Mengele and the Nazis were doing in Auschwitz, mm-hmm. only on a much larger scale. There were, there were tens of thousands of, of, uh, of patients, and, and none of them survived. But they kept uh, very meticulous paperwork. In a lot of cases, they were, they were live vivisectioning people. Oh, my God. And some of the stuff they were doing was so absolutely horrible, removing organs from a live host to preserve them at the very last minute in jars like this. <sighs> so I found a direct correlation. I mean, 731 is like one of the nastiest things that have ever happened in the history of mankind. And it is not very well known or talked about in Japan. And there is, there is a large reaction to pretty much anything that has any type of, of criticism, like um, the book The Rape of Nanking that came out. It wasn't even published in Japan. They, wouldn't, they couldn't find a Japanese publisher who would touch it, right? The only copy you could get was in English if you had it shipped in. Of course, you had to know English in order to read it by uh, Irish Chang. So uh, 731 is not a popular topic. And it's the same thing in, in, in America. Um, I mentioned before that we are pretty self-reflexive when it comes to cinema. But, you know, Americans are very, very bad even today, even recently, about talking about uh, uh, the sins of our nation, whether it be the removal of the Native Americans or the genocide of the Native Americans or the slavery that happened in Antebellum or, or how we've been treating, you know, half of our population um, under a certain economic strata forever. You know, we're just not very good at talking about that on on a national scale, except using cinema. And again, you you may not hit that may not hit you when you go see it. I mean, are are most Americans who go see Black Panther really understand why he is a focus uh, point of power? Probably not. Yeah, that I think that's we both agree that that was the brilliance of Watchmen because I think it didn't treat the audience like an idiot and. Right like really hit it over the head, but wasn't oppressive about that. Like this is about slavery and, and the fallout and how long that fallout was going to last. Unflinching racism. Yeah. On its naked face. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I have that I really like about Akira is that it's, it's unflinching. We talked about the, the violence and, and the sexuality, but really the raw emotion in an adolescent form, like, I I can't tell you what I was like as a 13 or 14 year old. My mother would probably be a better person, but I'm sure <laughs> I was not too fun to deal with. And that right. goes into the plot of the cure of, of why did the army start with these kids before puberty? Mm. It's because they could be controlled. And Akira wound up being the perfect age and the perfect personality to contain that type of power. Tetsuo is right in the middle, middle of puberty, can't ride a bike right, can't be in a gang without his best friend being the leader, uh, can't talk to girls, uh, can't kiss a girl for anything. Uh, all he can do is grab a wrench and hit somebody in the head at the high speed on his bike. That's all right. he can do, right? And that inferiority complex uh, crossed with those hormones 
And now you're going to insert unparalleled telekinetic and psychokinetic power. That's you just that's a bomb waiting to happen. Exactly. Yeah, that was. I think that goes a little deeper into my point about how my way into this was looking at how uncontrollable life feels for the teenager. And you're so right about how they chose little kids because that was they were much more able to they were much more malleable and manipulatable, I guess. Yeah, and of course, we haven't got to it yet, but the finale where Tetsuo is finally morphing, I mean, that's a pretty one-to-one comparison for uh, puberty, of your body changing and not being able to control it, not the process being so quick that it's shocking Mm -hmm. to you. You get the iconic metal arm there reminiscent of also star wars, wars right? yeah yeah and i didn't even understand that when the first time i saw it happen it's like what he's he just made an arm out of nothing but you're kind of skipping over the mental power that he has achieved in order to make that happen he is controlling matter outside his body and that was the tomo's point that kind of reminded me of of the floating pin in kubrick's 2001 which is another film that has great influence on akira as we'll see later, but uh, Kubrick just lets this pen float in front of the camera for like a minute or so. And people quite frankly got bored. They were, why is he showing? I understand that he's in gravity, but, but these are sci-fi people. That's not what Kubrick was going after. Kubrick was trying to explain to you, man is not in control of his environment. This is bad. This is when bad things happen. And that's what Kubrick was trying to get across to this point. And that's what I missed the first time I'd seen Akira when he made the arm out of nothing or when they make the teddy bear out of these parts that are just kind of lying around when they're manipulating something. I just saw it as something. You've seen a thousand cartoons by now. You've seen a thousand movies by now. Just go with the flow. Just watch the movie. Just what did you think? I wasn't actually thinking Tetsu is actually manipulating things to his purpose using these powers that he got into this collision with uh, Takashi. And I failed to to connect those dots. And that's when I say you might need to watch Kira two times, three times, 15. Yeah. Well, when I, so I studied literature in undergrad and my advisor who we've had on the podcast twice now, and we'll probably have a million more times, always told me that you need to read a book more than once to really get the meat out of it. And when I was in college, I was like, I don't have time enough to read books multiple times. Like, that's ridiculous. I'm still trying to catch up on what's out there, you know. But now that we have a podcast, there's no way I'm walking into a podcast watching a movie one time or reading the book one time. Like, I am immersing myself in all of what's out there before I start talking about it because there's just, there's so many layers and we always miss layers too. There's never enough time to talk about everything you want to get to, but especially I think another thing about watching something like Akira over and over is like the amount of time that goes by between watches is important for you to grow and change. And then you you pick things up when you're at different ages. And this is something that I think will just keep morphing because there's just so much here. I'm going to bring up someone that I try never to bring up in my podcast, which is Pauline Kael. Pauline Kael was like one of the most influential movie critics ever. And she had a brilliant mind and she was the birther of the hot take. (laughs) And sometimes I would read things that Colleen 
Pauline Kael would read and I would just, it would just make me want to shred her book. And, and I don't know if she was just trying to have that violent reaction out of you and just trying to create the hot take. I don't think so. I think she truly thought these things. And one of the things that she said was brace yourself. I only watch movies once. That's all she needed. You try to get through this. That's crazy. I I mean, that I, I don't understand how you could. Yeah. Like I, I'm familiar with her as a movie critic and I just don't, understand how you think you could do your job. <laughs> well, like, I just, I find that really hard to believe. I don't know. Cause even with this movie, I watched it once and it was a lot. And I was like, you know, it's going to take me a while to want to dive into this. And now we're watching it again. You know, like Ryan said, six weeks later or so. And I'm like, I made it again. I'm yeah, I'm here and I'm and picking I'm, up a lot more. And I'm just now really noticing the, the veins coming out of his arm. I know Ryan, you had mentioned that, uh, in previous talks of this being one of your most favorite, like visceral images um, from from the movie, it's it's really standing out this time around. It's kind of the first time where we see him lose control. Yeah, Tetsuo lose control of whatever you know he's come to understand is 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 this power, and it it grows and it, it it's in parallel with his emotions. Like when he gets mad, you see everything kind of flex and he crushed the, the, the chair with that hand. Um, when he pulls out at the, this is the moment where, where things start to go pretty South for him. The pulsating technology is such an interesting visual because it's fully mechanical metal, but it has that pulse of an artery it's just, yeah, showing humans' connection oh to te- technology, more specifically technology of of power, like guns or just, weapons of mass destruction, and it's being oh so gross. <laughs> it's being like, conveyed as this just disease that is yeah, oh, spreading. Kind of you know going back to that message of how power is getting out of hand, um, of how like through technology, certain advancements have actually. It's gone too far. Well, say it together with me, people. With great power. Comes responsibility. Comes great responsibility. And Tetsuo has none. Yes. Right. Right. And he is failing to control this part of his biological changing because he doesn't understand it. Uh, You know, in theory, if he had just listened to the colonel, let Mm -hmm. us test you, let us find out what's going on with you and let us help you. Tetsuo would be probably in a better position to, to manage this. Mm-hmm. But as an adolescent, he's incapable of doing right. anything that authority right. tells him to do. Right. And that's I think exactly that says a lot about that. Yeah. I mean, I've got two teenagers. <laughs> yeah. You're in the middle of it. Three words. Fuck that shit. I'm not doing that. I'm not talking yeah. about the garbage. I'm not listening to you. I'm not doing my homework. I'm not doing anything you say. No, I'm not listening to your podcast. I don't care if it's on the show. <laughs> This might be a little bit of a of a real long shot, but those stadium lights, next time you see them, if we see them again, they look exactly like the Wayland yutani symbol from Aliens. Like the same shape with the W. Oh, yeah. Ryan, you just won the podcast. <laughs> Jeez. I thought I won with a Rogue One reference, but... Yeah, no, that was <laughs> top by the Wayland yutani pool. Shoot. All right, I need to come up with that another... Was a deep pool. 
What are your favorite movies, David? <laughs> uh, Canada. Oh, it's so gross, but I can't look away. That is puberty, my friend. Oh, it is. That's exactly what puberty is. Yeah. Sure. This is exactly where I came up. This is where I was like, oh, my God, big mouth. Like, mm, yeah. The, the hormone monsters. Like, this is. Yeah, the tentacles. 100% hormone tumor, I think, is, like, the way that That's, I want to describe that. That is a teenage boy. Yeah. <laughs> but you can even liken it to the adult's in Jurassic Park of that same message of scientific breakthrough without discipline mm. leads to, you know, literal monsters. Um, in this mm. case, the, the adults in Jurassic Park very much are stand-ins for teenagers, like teenage behaviors thinking like, I want to do this thing. <laughs> I don't want to worry about the consequences. And of course the consequences end up uh, literally eating you alive. Yeah, I think for the, going back to this scene, the idea of how toxic masculinity ends up perpetuating violence against female bodies, like, I think it's really poignant that, you know, if a young female dies as a result of this hormone explosion. Yeah. Like, it's probably a little far if you think about most American teenagers or most, you know, teenagers around the world that they're going to murder their their love interest, but it certainly happened. And it, yep. you know, I think it's really, it's not an accident. Like you were saying, he's very intentional about his imagery and it's not just a, you know, another guy that's killed in this. It, it is no secret. I think it's in the high 87% or 89% percentile of um, all the victims, almost all victims of sexual violence are women mm -hmm. and all the perpetrators, at least in that high percentile are men. Um, right. what we, we lack in, in Corey, not having more scenes here is like I was saying before, uh, her death impacts Tetsuo greatly in the manga mm. and you just kind of lose that. She, she's on screen, she dies and in a very disgusting way and you're, yeah. you're left sort of, well, and Tetsuo says like, you know, I'm feeling her pain and it's hurting me, but without her hanging out with him, trying to, to empathize with him and be with him. You're kind of left out on on what that really means for him. Yeah, that's a good point. So, as as a female character, I I think she needed more screen time. Mm -hmm. In yeah. any female, I mean, Akira does not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> no, you know, no, not at know, all. And but I mean, most films don't pass the Bechdel test. I don't mm -hmm. think I've covered a film on the Super Seventy podcast that that does. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Like we we've gotten some feedback about the diversity of our topics and authors and directors. And I'm not using this as an excuse, but it is difficult sometimes. And that's why we started doing the episodes on books we wish were movies, so that we could get some more diversity in there. But again, I'm not using that as an excuse. But sometimes it's difficult to yeah. find that. So great, uh, go through that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great example of. Less is more here with showing just Akira briefly, and then that's all you need to really get the impact of. Of course, it's the complete inverse in the series, but that's just because you had more time there. I think since they had a limited amount of time to just show Akira briefly, I think was made it even more uh, impactful and bittersweet. 
and the colonel survival is makes much more sense here there in the manga like a lot of people survived the second explosion and you just you're really you don't know why yeah it's just kind of random Now, I forgot to say it before. I couldn't work it in, but the the whole cyberpunk aspect with the laser cannon mm, mm-hmm. and cyberpunk being so ingrained in Blade Runner and Alien and all this other yeah. things. Um, uh, cyberpunk effectively is high tech, low life, and mm. I, I don't know anything that embodies that more than, than Canada running around on this bike with a laser cannon. Yeah. And Aliens certainly took a lot of that cyberpunk influence from its original film, but also Akira of having Ripley having that huge machine gun and, and flamethrower. Oh, yeah. seeing one of the most iconic, like female heroines in cinema. And the disgusting nature of the face hugger. Yeah. All of the, particularly in uh, aliens, 1986, where you see the inside of what the aliens had done to uh, LB 426's compound. And then, um, paralleling that to or, or comparing that to uh, Tetsuo and how he just blows up into this organism that you don't really comprehend or understand or it's just gross or disgusting. And I can't believe I'm bringing up this film, but Alien Resurrection, which is not a good oh, film. Oh, that's over the scale, but that's very, that's that's even more of a, a, that's a better comparison for sure. Yeah, where it has that scene where Ripley finds the facility very much like the Esper's facility where the government or the company, Wayland, has been experimenting with the xenomorphs on uh, people to kind of create these hybrids. So, yeah. And here we go. We're friends again. And we didn't even scratch the surface when we came to uh, Tetsuo. We really need to dive deep into that. I'm saving all of my cards for the mm-hmm. next episode. <laughs> Otoma said, I wanted to revive a Japan like the one I grew up in after the Second World War, with a government in difficulty, a world being rebuilt, external political pressures, an uncertain future, and a gang of kids left to fend for themselves, even as they cheat boredom by racing on motorbikes. Mm. Really poignant to have this these flashbacks here at the height um, of the film. I've seen some criticism that they wanted these flashbacks. Um, people wanted these earlier in the film for some more development, but I think placing them at the very end with Tetsuo uh, being enveloped is what was the better um, decision. No, it's a memory it's, journey. Yeah, it's the same as the end of two thousand one where you're experiencing uh, when Bowman is experiencing his life in different stages and what it had been like if he had not left earth. So I, I want to ask a question cause I haven't read all of the manga volumes, but why do you think that the children become their faces become old? Is that just their energy being like sucked out of them for so oh, long? They, or? they keep them from aging cause they don't want them to reach puberty. Okay. Because they want them to complete control. There's a fear that if they get, this is implied. This is not, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan. This is not implicit in the novels. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reason they have, they have aged in these young bodies is because the, you know, with these superpowers, they don't want them to become adolescents because they are afraid of Tetsuo will, 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 th- this is what will happen. That but, makes sense. Yeah. But, Lady Miyako is very aware of what will happen, uh, like the military is, but she, she actually encourages Tetsuo 
of look, if you want to reach your full potential, and if you want to be like a carrier or better than a carrier, you're going to have to do this. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to stop taking those drugs, and you're going to have to focus on on what it is that's making you this way. Yeah, that's what I, I interpreted the drugs as having a a stunting effect mm-hmm. on your uh, physical growth. Hormonal growth, yeah. At least, yeah. I don't remember exactly where it falls in which volume, but I think that's correct. There's an effect of either a a drug or something that they've been given that affects um, just the physicality, their their physicality. Yeah, because there's a line in the manga where the colonel asks Tetsuo to come with them. And then Tetsuo is like, and spend a life looking like the, and he points to the espers. Right. Right. Yeah. And who wants to be 14 forever? Certainly not me. No, oh, thank you. Oh gosh. No. No. <laughs> 17, maybe 18, uh, 20, probably 21. Perfect. Yeah. 21 when you can yeah, legally drink. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. You get the background between their friendship. Yeah. And this is in the manga as well. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting how quickly, you know, this is going back to the beginning, but how quickly young people sort of become uh, a caste system. And, like, really the only reason that Tetsuo is on the bottom is because he, like, can't ride a motorcycle or he's, like, a little bit younger, I think. And it just shows how quickly, like, children mirror what they're seeing around them. And I think that, you know, they're seeing these people struggle for power and they're like, all right, well, that's what we're supposed to do. So who can we bully? Like, what can we find in this person or who has, who says something dumb the first time that we can sort of put down and keep down below us. And then of course this backlash is going to happen. The first time that he gets some power, of course he's going to use it against the people who kept him down. Yeah, both stories do a great job at making the colonel very much like a frustrated dad figure. Uh, he's a figure of authority, but he very much is a, a, a father to, uh, not a good father, to the uh, kids, uh, people with power. Yeah, that's a good point. And the same thing happens to him that happened to Corey. Yeah, yep. Right. Squeezed in between matter. Oof. Somebody asked Otomo why there's so many explosions in his films. Because they're dope. <laughs> explosions are dope. <laughs> he said, there's a reason why my stories feature so many devastating explosions. I'm unfortunately convinced that that's how everything will end. Oh. <sighs> I mean, I see, I see that, though, coming from a Japanese person. I understand where that's coming from Mm -hmm. because in America, we're so insulated. Like, I mean, we just passed September 11th and it's very traumatizing for people in America because that's one of the most recent slash only attacks on us soil, quote unquote. And that's unfortunately not the reality for so many people around the world. Mm -hmm. Like, most people in different. this world have a very difficult life that is uh, traumatized by several experiences. And Americans um, in the 20th century, particularly, um, 
we've lost sight. We're in the 21st century. We've lost sight of that. It's been 20 years since we've had something uh, hugely traumatic in our, in our national mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a Cold War kid. I was born in 75. And I can tell you that the Cold War was real. Um, mm-hmm. That my teachers in grade school told me, like, look, everyone in this room is going to serve in the military in some function. And by, by, by the time that I was a teenager, I think that it was something like 60% of all Americans uh, in the population had served in some way in, in a uniform or the Peace Corps or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's completely lost. That's completely gone. We've had mm-hmm. uh, no universal selective service since 1980. Uh, we've no skin in the game. We're completely divorced from our, our service personnel. And um, this feeling that I had as a kid of this might happen, of this, we all might die in some nuclear holocaust of uh, Terminator was real because of that, or Terminator 2 was in very recent memory, even though that came out after the Cold War was over. Mm-hmm. There was this idea, particularly with Reagan and Gorbachev and Helmut Kohl, this was all something that was very real and very dangerous world that we were living in. And then when it was all over, there was a big sigh of relief. And we were like, oh, okay, <laughs> well, we got through that all right. And our last war ended in 1973 and we're going to be okay now because we, mm-hmm. we just pulled off this thing in the Middle East and we lost 300 soldiers and everything's fine. And we just floated along that way for a whole decade, just unknowing that we are just barreling towards this enormous catastrophe that not just for us, but for uh, the entire world, particularly for the Afghan people. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you live in Japan, even though there's this uh, thing that you don't talk about, which is Hiroshima, there's this national feeling of what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are very, still very pissed off about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the bomb was used against them in this way. And I remember when George Bush, George H.W. Bush was president and uh, the prime minister of Japan had the gumption at the time to ask for an apology. George Bush was a fighter pilot in the Pacific war. Wrong fucking person to ask for an apology. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe you should have waited to the next president probably would have gotten <laughs> But the blowout from that, Clinton wasn't going to give that. Of course not. And uh, quite frankly, I don't think we should apologize for something that we did in wartime in order to win. Didn't mm-hmm. make it right. Didn't make it morally defensible. But that's what we did under the pressures of the time. Um, that's how it happened. There's no change in that. Saying sorry is not going to help anybody. Not doing again, I think that's imperative. Mm-hmm. And if we can get rid of these damn things by using the Japanese as a case study, even better. Look how fucked up the world is because we did this thing that was horrible. And uh, what Kira says about that, living in that national bomb, mm-hmm. uh, not very specifically, but living in a, in, a, in a country that had that traumatized thing forced upon you. I can't imagine what that was like. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we're getting a glimpse of that when we watch Akira. We're in the credits. Final thoughts, guys. Yeah. Please. Final thoughts. I... I really did not think that I was going to enjoy Akira when I started the manga, but I've come full, fully around to understanding the cultural significance of it, and I would watch it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm just, I love the way that the film has its cake and eats it too, where you have that intense political messaging, but it's not too overtly over the head in a way that it can't be consumed or it's not pretentious. You know, you also have the awesome action and I'm just still in awe at the level of dedication, you know, shown in creating a film, like a city, a world, a living, breathing organism. That's so complex and and rich in character where 
every frame is is drawn to perfection. I mean, it, it is truly a piece of art. So it's been a, a joy to discuss it. It's it's one of my favorite films, and it has been for a while. And each time I watch it, I I learn something new, or I try to, or, or I find myself looking at certain characters or or happenings uh, in the story through a different lens. And I think this time, through y'all's conversations, it it I, I viewed it much more as a um, commentary on adolescence and growth to maturity than I have in the past, I think. I mean, I, I usually have tended to try to understand, you know, kind of the, the powers that are struggling to control one another. And this was, you know, and kind of enlightening for me to really have a good take uh, or look at it as, and focus on the adolescence of the char- of the main characters involved and what the struggles are um, inherent in that stage of life. And something I thought of, 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 of about 20 minutes ago was, I think Dylan, I think you mentioned it earlier in terms of the first time you see the film, how you're, you're, you're left kind of holding the bag up until the end of the movie when they finally provide some semblance of understanding as to what is all going on. And it made me think of, you know, the, these, these kids that are going through this don't know what the heck is going on throughout the story either. They're just kind of going as it and taking it as it comes. And you as the viewer are kind of tasked with that too. I mean, you're almost intentionally kept in the dark along the, the way up until the very end and, and the characters in the viewer kind of come to understand everything that's happening uh, at the same time, which is, which is interesting. Um, yes. You, you know, some characters like the Colonel and the scientist or the doctor that, that have a better idea of, as to what ha- what's happening, but that's not really explicitly conveyed, you know, to the audience or or the main characters very well, especially in the movie. I mean, in the manga, it's a little bit more clearly stated. You understand what's going on a little bit better, but um, it's a phenomenal piece of work. It's it's a work of art, and it's very culturally important. Um, and I hope that uh, more people become aware of it and and you know come to appreciate it for what it is. Both the manga and the film, they're both absolutely astounding. Um, and I, I love both very dearly. Um, and it's been a pleasure having the chance to discuss it with you guys. Well, thanks very much, all of you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having Thank us you on very your podcast. Much for having this is wonderful. Yeah.